would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, the passage that we're looking at today is also printed for you in the bulletin. You will remember that last week we started a new series. We're going to be looking at this book of 2 Samuel for uh, the school year. Last week we heard about the death of Saul and we saw David respond with this visceral, immediate, emotional reaction of grieving, of lamenting the, the loss of his king, King Saul, and of Saul's son, David's close friend, Jonathan. Today we pick up the second half of chapter 1, and here we see David coming back to his grief, coming back to a time of lament to profess his sorrow before God. Uh, it's referred to as a lament, and I invite you to uh, look as I begin reading in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was de defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. In particular, we thank you for this portion of it that we're looking at today. Father, I pray that you would teach us what you want us to know. Help us to see wonderful things of your grace and of your mercy. Help us to grow in our knowledge and our love for you and our love for others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's probably not best that you get your theology from the movie Forrest Gump. And especially not your theology of death. There have been many who have suggested that that 1994 film that won six Oscars is really a film about death and dying. Uh, that it gives us a commentary on death and dying and what we should think, how we should view death. There are lots of 
situations of death in the movie that Forrest, the main character, has to navigate. One of them is when his mother calls him to come back home where she tells him that she is dying of cancer and her death is coming soon. And as Forrest begins to try to process what that means and the consequences that will come as a result of that, his mother says this to him, Death is just a part of living. Death is just a part of living. Now that seems harmless enough, doesn't it? I mean, after all, what she's trying to do is to put his mind at ease, to to normalize what's about to happen, uh, to say that this is a natural part of life, Forrest. Death is just a natural part of life. Now, the problem is this. The Bible has a very different view of death. The scriptures are very clear. They tell us that death is not just a part of life. That death came about because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. It is not how it was supposed to be. It is unnatural. It is a hated enemy. It brings sorrow and anguish and grief and lament. It is the ripping apart of the body and the soul. And it is something that has been defeated at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and will one day be eliminated completely when he returns. We see this picture of intense sorrow and grief and lament caused by death. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is here lamenting over the death of his king, Saul, and his dear friend, Jonathan. Lament is not something that we talk about. It's, it's not something that we, that we study a lot, but the Bible addresses it fairly often and even speaks about the need for it. And David here gives us a good picture Uh, Some have suggested that this passage that we've read, David's Lament here, is one of the greatest pieces of poetry in the Old Testament or even in the Bible itself. David gives us a good picture of the importance of lament. And he shows us the cause of lament and he also gives us a model of what it looks like. Now, before we dive in to look at those things, just a quick recap of what we saw last week. We are jumping into the story of the life of David at a major turning point in his life and in the life of Israel. At the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, we are told about the death of King Saul, who was killed in battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And last week, as we looked at the first half of chapter 1, we saw the story of this Amalekite man who witnessed the death of Saul on Mount Gilboa. And he traveled across the kingdom to give David the news of the death of King Saul. Now, when he arrived, he thought David would be happy to hear this news. That, in fact, he would rejoice at the news that King Saul had died. Saul had tried to kill David on a number of occasions. And now, with Saul dead, not only would David's life be safe, but now the path to the kingship for David was cleared. So this... Amalekite man assumed that he bringing this news to David would be good news. And we saw last week that the Amalekite man decided to make himself the hero of the story. 
And so he changed what actually happened. Rather than telling him the truth, which is that Saul... Uh, saw that he was mortally wounded and that the, the, the Philistines were about ready to capture him and surely would have tortured him and killed him, he took his own life by following on his sword. But we saw last week that the Amalekites, sensing an opportunity to make himself look good in front of the soon-to-be King David, changed the story a little bit and made himself the hero, saying that he killed Saul at Saul's request. Well, what we saw last week in verses 11 and 12 was that David got that news. He burst into an emotional reaction of grief. He tore his clothes and he began to grieve the loss of his king and his dear friend. After that, he confirmed that this man who was bringing him this news uh, knew what it was like to live in Israel. This Amalekite was a sojourner. He was someone who had lived in Israel. He knew the laws of Israel. He knew the customs of Israel. And he knew that no Israelite should ever raise their hand against the Lord's anointed, the king. And so because the Amalekite had done that, or at least that's what he told David he had done, David had him executed for what he had said he had done. Now today... We're coming back to the second part of the story. And what we see is David, after the execution of this Amalekite, is now coming back to a period of time of grief. This, what we have written for us in the second half of chapter 1, is not the spontaneous burst of emotion that we saw earlier. But what we have here is a thoughtful, intentional, written lament. But it's no less emotional. Let's look and see what David shows us is the importance of lament and the cause of it and the model for it. So, first of all, the importance of lament. Look at verses 17 and 18. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. David took time to write out his lament, and he made sure that it would be recorded and then taught to the people of God. We're going to see later that this is a very intentional, thought-out, purposeful lament. And David captured it in writing. And he made sure, not only that he had written it down, but that it would be recorded in what he called the book of Jashar. Now that book... Uh, no longer exists, so we don't have it today, but it is something that's mentioned also in the book of Joshua. And most scholars believe that it was likely a collection of heroic stories and people of Israel written down so that the people of God could have access to them. And so David wanted his lament of Saul and Jonathan not only to be written down, but to be recorded in this, this annals of, of heroic stories of the people of God. And notice, he wanted to make sure that the details of his lament would be taught to the Israelites. That they might know it, that they might recite it, probably even that they would sing it. Why was it so important? Why was this lament so important that David said it must be written down, it must be recorded, and it must be passed on to the next generations. Well, I think there's at least two reasons why it's such an important thing. The first is this. David wanted his lament to inspire God's people for the next time that they would battle the Philistines. Now look again at verse 18. 
depending on what translation you have, it says something a little bit different. But in the ESV, it says, And David said that it should be taught to the people. The it there is referencing his written lament. But in the Hebrew, the word it is actually the word for bow, as a bow and arrow. It's a reference to a, a, a weapon of war that was used on Mount Gilboa, pr- primarily by, Dave, or, uh, by Jonathan. It's as if he's saying, this is the title of my lament. This is, this is the bow. This is the lament of the bow. This is to remind you of what happened in battle with the bow and the shield on Mount Gilboa. He wanted to remind them that for sure battles with the Philistines were going to come again. And he wanted them to be ready and to be motivated because of what had happened on Mount Gilboa. Israel actually does something like this even down to this very day. Today when soldiers of Israel join the Israel Armored Corps, they swear an oath of allegiance. And when they do that, they are actually taken just a little bit west of the Dead Sea to an ancient city called Masada. And in this ancient city of Masada, there's a fortress, the Fortress of Masada. And it's a fortress that is very well known in Israel. In the first century, 960 Israelis defended the Fortress of Masada against a Roman army that came to lay siege against it. For seven months, the people of God defended that fortress. Eventually, the Roman army overpowered the fortress and broke in. But before they could capture and kill and probably torture the the Jews that remained, they took their own lives to not allow that to happen. And so the fortress at Masada became a symbol of courage and valor for Israel. And the Israeli troops now stand on the summit of the fortress at Masada to take their oath of joining the Israeli army. And they say, Masada shall not fall again. There's a sense in which David is is giving this lament in in a similar way. He's, He's saying, we must remember what happened at Gilboa. So that when we go to battle again, we are reminded of the disgrace and the shame of the people of God losing their king and losing the heir of the king, Jonathan, on that mountain. And we will not let it happen again. But I think there's an even more important reason why David wanted this recorded for all time. It is because he wanted his grief, his sorrow, this lament To be known by the people as something that is appropriate, that is right, that is good. Again, remember the title of this lament. David calls it the bow, the lament of the bow. That was the particular weapon that Jonathan, his dear friend, used. Scholars have suggested that David's title is a reference to Jonathan himself. That Jonathan is the bow. That this lament is really more about the the son of the king, Jonathan, the dear friend, than the king himself. Regardless of whether it's more about Jonathan or Saul, David expressed a serious sadness and a serious grief over the loss of his king and his dearest friend. And he wanted the people of God throughout the ages to see it and to feel it. To know that it's appropriate and that it's right to lament and to grieve. 
That's why it's important. Now, before we move on to see the cause of it, let me just offer one quick reminder for God's people today. We live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. A world that is full of difficulties and disappointments and tribulations. And it is appropriate. It is even It is important and it's even necessary that at times God's people should express grief and lament. It's certainly true that people can express grief inappropriately through self-medication or despairing of life itself or an unending anger toward their creator. But those wrong ways of expressing lament and grief don't mean that it's wrong. To grieve and to lament rightly. Sometimes there are even long seasons of grief. Think about when we love when we lose a loved one, when a loved one dies, a spouse, a parent, a child. That's a prolonged period of grief and lament that is right, that is appropriate, that is important for us to do. And a reminder this morning that although the intensity may lessen over time, grief and sorrow may remain for a long season. And it is not right, it is not good, it is not helpful for us to come alongside of people who are in those seasons and say, you just need to get over it now. It's been too long, move on. David is showing us that that is not right, that that is not good, that that's not a helpful thing to communicate to such a person in a season of grief. The Bible teaches us that grief and sorrow can be deep and ongoing and it invites us to experience it and to express it in lament. David shows us the cause of lament here. Now, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in David's lament. So much of the history that's in David's mind as he pens these words at the death of Saul and Jonathan. If you know any of the history that's told in First and Second Samuel, you know that David and Saul had a very complicated relationship. Saul sinned against the Lord. He sinned against David. He sinned against the people of God a lot. In fact, part of what is in David's mind as he pens these words of lament is that he knows that the reason, at least in part, for Israel's defeat on Mount Gilboa and for Saul's death and being removed as the king of Israel is that Saul had sinned against the Lord. In 1 Samuel, we read the story about God giving Saul very specific instructions, very explicit commands to destroy the Amalekites, And Saul intentionally failed to obey the Lord God Almighty. And when he did, God came and said that he he was grieved that he had ever made Saul the king. And he said to Saul, you will lose the kingship because of your disobedience. But it goes even deeper than that. As David is penning these words, he not only knows that what happened at Mount Gilboa is at least in part because of Saul's sin, he knows also that it's in part because of the sin of the people of Israel. It was the people of Israel that had Saul be their king to begin with. We read in 1 Samuel that the people cried out to God 
We look around and we see all of these pagan nations and they have kings who take care of them. And all we have is you, Lord God Almighty. We want a human king to take care of us like these pagan nations have. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And he gave them King Saul. It was, it was as if the people of God were saying, we don't want you, Lord God Almighty, to be our Lord and King. We want a human king instead. What an affront. What an offense to God. All of this is wrapped up in the events of Mount Gilboa and the death of Saul and Jonathan, the sin of Saul, the sin of the people of God. And David's lament, his grief, at least in part, is because he knows that there would be extremely bad consequences that would come as a result of this. The people of God would be disgraced and shamed. They had just suffered this dramatic defeat. Their king had been killed. The heir to the king, Jonathan, had been killed. And many cities in the north had been lost to the Philistines. And he knew that the Philistines would rejoice and they would gloat. That's what he's talking about in verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David knew that this would be an occasion for the Philistines and other pagan nations to rejoice and dishonor the Lord. He also knew that the Philistine false god Dagon would be praised and honored again in an offense to the true Lord God Almighty. He knew that Israel would be opened up to great turmoil within and uncertainty about the future. And all of this was a result of the sin of Saul and the people of God. So there's a sense in which David's grief, David's lament is caused by sin. The sin of Saul and the sin of the people of God. Now I want to make a very careful distinction here. So please hear this carefully. Not all of our grief and sorrow and lament is the result directly of our own personal sin. Not all of our grief and sorrow and lament is a result directly of our own personal sins. Sometimes we are filled with grief and sorrow and lament because of things that happen that are not directly connected with my words and my actions and my thoughts. But at its root, at its foundation, sorrow and grief and lament at the root of that, at the foundation of that, is the fall. It's Adam and Eve's sin in the garden when they not only sinned against the Lord, but through them we all are catapulted into sin. And all of creation is tainted with sin. If there had been no fall, there would be no grief, there would be no sorrow, there would be no more lament. And the Bible is clear that there will be no more sorrow and grief and lament or tears in the new heavens and the new earth. Because there will be no more sin and there will be no more death. So not all lament and grief comes from our personal sin. But all sin, ours and others, should lead us to lament. That's part of what David is doing here by having this 
poem written down and recorded for God's people. He wants them to remember this event in the history of God's people, remembering the sin that led up to it and the disgrace that is theirs because of it and to lament and to grieve and to repent. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a sense in which our personal sin should move us to grieve and to sorrow and to lament. That should be part of our repentance as the Lord brings us to a sense of conviction about our sin and perhaps in particular our besetting sins, those sins that seem to have their arms around us in a way we cannot get loose of them. When the Lord brings us to a sense of conviction of our sin, what would it look like to truly grieve and lament? What if in those moments... We intentionally and thoughtfully and carefully wrote out our lament to the Lord and used that as a way of praying our repentance back to the Lord. It's not just our own personal sin that we should lament. It's also, if you will, our national sins, the sin of abortion, the lack of sanctity of human life from the womb to, the, to heaven. Our disinterest and indifference with the poor. Our lack of humility and civility and dignity toward other image bearers of God. Our own national sins, if you will, should move us to seasons of lament and sorrow and grief and repentance. I came across the story this past week of... Uh, Samuel Rutherford, who was a 17th century Scottish pastor and writer. He was one of the Scottish uh, delegates to the Westminster Assembly that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And Rutherford talks about a time in his life as a pastor in Scotland when he looked around at the country, the country of Scotland, and he became particularly discouraged with the lack of godliness that he saw in the country. And Rutherford said this, In one of his sermons to his people, the wind of Scotland is going against the face of Christ. The wind of Scotland is going against the face of Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should lament the ways that the wind of America is going against the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's appropriate, it's needed. It's important for us to sorrow and to lament about that. And David actually gives us a model of what that can look like. He he shows us a model of what lament and grieving looks like. There are actually two different models here in chapter 1. We talked about the first one last week. Mentioned it earlier in the service. It's verses 11 and 12. That's the, the grieving, the sorrowing that David has as he immediately hears the news about the death of Saul and Jonathan. He broke out in a a spontaneous, emotional reaction of grief and lament. But what we read here in verses 17 and following is something different. Some period of time has passed. We don't know how long, but some period of time has passed. And David has sat down to collect his thoughts and to put them in writing. And what we have is a careful, thoughtful, disciplined, intentional expression of grief. A written lament. It's no less emotional and no less heartfelt. Ralph Davis, who was a PCA pastor and Old Testament scholar, 
professor at a Reformed seminary until his recent death, as he came to this portion of the scriptures and his commentary on 2 Samuel said that what we have here from David is intensity of emotion put together with discipline of the mind to produce structured sorrow and coherent agony. David paused deliberately. Think of it this way. At this moment, Israel was in the state of crisis. Their cities in the north had been taken over by the Philistines. Their king and the heir to the throne had both been killed. David, who knew that his time to be king was coming, probably was anxious to have that happen quickly so that he could rally the troops and they could restore what had been taken away from them. But he paused. He waited. Deliberately. This patient pause to lament and to grieve. And notice what he grieved about. In verse 19, we see that he he grieved about Israel in general. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. It's a refrain that comes up three times there in 19 and verse 25. And again at the end in verse 27. David doesn't shrink back from recognizing how bad the situation is and the potential for great shame and disgrace for Israel that could come. But he doesn't just lament over the loss of Israel in general. He he, he laments over the loss of Saul in particular. Look at what he says in verses 22 and following. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, in contrast to the daughters of Philistine, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. He clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Did you notice that as as David is lamenting over the death of Saul, think of all of the bad things he could have said. He doesn't focus on or even mention the negative things about Saul. And there were plenty. There's almost the sense of thanksgiving for the ways that Saul served so honorably. John Calvin, as he was reflecting on this aspect of David's lament, said, Since God elevated Saul to such a dignity of being king of Israel, that is reason enough for me to honor him. That is how greatly David esteemed the common grace of God in a man who was so perverse. That helps us when we are in seasons of grief of losing someone that we know or even someone that we love. We shouldn't lie about that person. We shouldn't lie about that person's shortcomings and sin. But David is showing us that it is okay to focus on God's common and special grace to that person. Things which we're thankful for. Things which were blessings and encouragements to us that came through that person. So David is showing us how to grieve for Israel in a general way and Saul in a particular way. And notice he also talks about grieving his dear friend, Jonathan. I mean, he said right at the beginning in verse 17, this is a a lamentation for both Saul and Jonathan. 
And notice in verse 22, he focuses on Jonathan's military valor. His bow that was strong in battle. In verse 23, he focuses on Jonathan's loyalty to his king and to his father. In life and in death, they were not divided. If you know the story, you know that Jonathan and Saul too had a very complicated relationship and not always very loving. But Jonathan was loyal to his father and to his king until the very end. And probably what is the the climax of David's lament comes at the end in verse 26 as he focuses on the significance of his friendship with Jonathan. He says in verse 26, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now it's very unfortunate that some take this, these words of David and try to point to some kind of an illicit relationship between Jonathan and David. There is absolutely no evidence of that here in this text or anywhere else in the scriptures. But what we do see is a very deep and meaningful and significant friendship. Notice he calls him his brother. What we are seeing here is a brotherly love that they had for one another that surpassed even the love of a woman. Now when we hear that, it sounds very weird. It sounds very strange to our ears. But in the ancient culture in which this was written, it would not have been that strange at all. Spouses in that culture were rarely significant friends, deep friends. Uh, Marriage in those contexts were often very contractual for uh, having children and raising children. But a husband and wife would not necessarily be very close in their relationship in terms of a deep friendship. And what we do see over and over in ancient cultures and even today are significant friendships between men and women. Here David is crying out and lament as he recognizes that his deep and dear friend has died. This one that he had an extraordinary brotherly love and respect and care for. David is mourning. He is lamenting the loss of of his great and dear friend. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we start to see this part of David's lament, it helps us and propels us forward because David is modeling this intense grief over a loss of a dear friend and it reminds us of the, of the loss of a, of a friend to the greater David and the ultimate David that would come. In John chapter 11, we read the story about the death of a man named Lazarus of Bethany. This man was a close personal friend with Jesus, the greater and ultimate David who was to come. After getting the news of Lazarus' death, we're told that Jesus went to Bethany. And when he got there, he went to the tomb where Lazarus had been laying for four days. And the text tells us that Jesus was planning to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. He was going to bring him back to life as a miracle to prove to the people that he not only was fully man, he was also fully God. And so it's absolutely amazing that we read in the text that when Jesus got to the tomb and he saw Lazarus' body, who he knew in just a matter of minutes he was going to raise from the grave, we're told in the text that Jesus was 
deeply moved at the death of his friend and he wept. It was such a display of lament and grief that we're told that the people watching said, see how this man loved him. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and brought life back to his lifeless body. That Greek word there for what it means, what says deeply moved, has the sense of a grief that is coupled with anger. What we're being told here is that as Jesus looked at the lifeless body of his friend, he, he erupted in lament and a righteous anger over death. And then he raised Lazarus from the grave. Where David lamented and had to sit in the grief of the loss of Jonathan, Jesus not only experienced that great grief and lament, he also dealt with it, ultimately conquering it through his own resurrection after dying on the cross. So that leaves us with two final things that I want you to reflect on as we leave today. The first is this. The only true and lasting remedy for our grief and for our sorrow and for our lament is the gospel. The good news of God's grace to us through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That it is only through a relationship with Jesus that we have the certainty that all of our grief and all of our sorrow and all of our lament will end one day. We are not given the certainty that it definitely will be in this life. But the certainty for God's people is this, that if we are in Christ, that a day is coming where grief and sorrow and lament will be no more. That's what we reminded ourselves earlier in the service with our assurance of grace from Romans 8. There is nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even death. Without a relationship of Jesus, without faith in our Savior, sorrow and grief and lament are eternal. But for those who are in Christ, there is a limit and there is an end to sorrow and grief and lament. The second thing that I want you to reflect on as you leave today is this. In this life, we likely will have to deal with sorrow and grief and lament. But in those days and in those seasons, we have this promise from God himself in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to and saves those who are crushed in spirit. As we go through this life, and as we experience grief and sorrow, it is appropriate, it is right, it is important, it is good for us to express it. And as we do so, we do so as people that have hope. The Lord promises to be with us in those moments. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not just a platitude. That is a covenant promise from our God. When we are in moments of lamentation and grief and sorrow, the Lord God Almighty, our Father in Heaven, is with us. His love will never 
let us go. So, we can be honest about our grief and our sorrow. We can enter into it when it's necessary to do so. We can express it. We can lament. We can know that if we are in Christ, one day all of our lamentation and grief will be removed and taken away forever. And until that day comes, we have the promise from God Himself that He will be with us in our brokenheartedness. And that should give us the strength and the hope that we need to endure and persevere. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word and we're so thankful that you've given to it, that you have preserved it over these many years, that you gave it to David to write down and that you have preserved it for us to read. Pray you would fill us with hope as we read it. Help us to believe what it says. And in those moments when we are filled with sorrow and grief, those moments when we lament our own sin and the sin of our country, the sin of this world, we pray, Father, that you indeed would be with us, that you'd be near to us, that you would minister your grace and peace and comfort to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.